0: everyone, and welcome to Word After Word, a podcast on writing. I'm your host, Paul Matthew Carr, and at this point, I would typically introduce my co-host, David Hicks. But today's a little bit different, so instead I'm just going to go ahead and introduce my guest. My guest is the professor of English at Regis University, and he co-directs the Mile High MFA program. He's the author of numerous short stories and has just finished a tour in support of his new novel, White Plains. Please welcome a fantastic writer and a dear friend, David Hicks. Thank you, Paul. I feel the same about you. Uh, so how does it feel to be in the interviewee chair rather than the hosting chair? It feels
1: less intimidating than being the interviewee at uh, another, someone else's show because you're my friend. So I feel like I can relax. But it, it's different. <laughs> it's very different because when you're the interviewer, you just ask questions and sit back and say, mm-hmm, not that that's all you do.
0: Yeah, that's all I do. I don't
1: that. Do <laughs> But when you're an interviewee, when you are the interviewee, you have to come
0: up with you know, clever res- responses and, and whatnot. So I'll do my best. Okay. I'll try to be honest. Well, you, you're, you're old hat at this now. You've been doing interviews for months now. This is my third interview. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, I had some interviews during the book tour, yeah. I've been interviewed uh, like in front of the audiences at Bookstore. Book, yeah, so I had, I, I've had some interviews. Yeah, maybe 10 or 11. Yeah, so you're a professional yeah. at this. No, I, I'm still terrified. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I want to talk about the tour, but first let's talk about White Plains. Okay. Okay, now David's debut novel, White Plains, follows the uh, the adventures of—well, the adventures and misadventures yeah. of Flynn Hawkins, a man who manages to lose everything and through a combination of perseverance and reinvention is able to regain those things in mm. new ways. So— where does Flynn come from?
1: Flynn comes from uh, an amalgam of different characters in my short stories that are sort of like me, because uh, when I published short stories, I tried to think of times in my life when there was a kind of a shift from who I was to who I was going to be or you know what I was doing to being something different. And there are lots, if you think about, if, if the people who are listening can think about times in their lives where there's such a shift takes place, it's, there are many, especially if you're as old as I am. So when I published short stories, I was largely drawing upon my own experiences. And then when it came time to collect the published short stories, um, I I was actually just, I wanted to make a short story collection that that probably wouldn't sell very well, according to publishers, so... Uh, I collected them and then uh I realized if I took out the stories that weren't about this guy who's kind of like me and I so I took those out and I ordered the stories that were left in uh chronologically as a not not in terms of when they were published but how old the Flynn character was and uh that formed a kind of novel arc it was you know uh a young man in New York who uh ended up uh, having his life kind of fall away and and have to remake himself in the Colorado Mountains. So when I did that, when I put those stories in order, I realized, oh, th- maybe this is a novel in stories. And then, um, so that's where Flynn came from, uh, came from my experiences crafted into stories and then again crafted into kind of a novel. And then I added uh, a bunch of stories from different points of view to kind of fill in the gaps in the narrative. Because th- I didn't write it as a novel, so there were gaps in the narrative. You know, there would be one story, and then the next story would be three years later. So I, ch- I kind of filled it in with stories from other people's points of view who added to our knowledge of Flynn from, you know, there's a sister who has a, has a chapter, the ex-wife, the kids. And that kind of adds to the narrative, fills in those gaps, and adds to our understanding of Flynn.
0: I was going to ask you about that because— there's a lot of people in the book that are based on real people or mm-hmm. people that you know mm-hmm. and you essentially get into the head of those people mm-hmm. you know how does that work what is that process to try to embody someone yeah and uh, to to empathize with their feelings yeah yeah you know, it, it's it's very difficult because you're it's it's a self-examination oh, yeah. from another point of view how does that pro- process work that's a very uh, yeah a well, difficult thing to do
1: well, first, it, uh, in the process, it becomes like I'm, I'm writing about Flynn. I'm not writing about me. And, and I am kind of writing about me, but it, it, it becomes a character, and then it's easier to write about him. Like, wow, what an idiot, <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's talk about him. And I, can I? so I get a little distance from him because he's a character and because he's crafted and because he does, he does things that I didn't do. And some of the people do stuff that uh, they didn't do. And you know there are characters like the mother and the sister and the baseball coach who are, who are just compl- and a best friend who are completely fictionalized, mm-hmm. so it's gets easy. But the empathy part is a oh, fun and easy for me. I think because I'm the second child, and I, you know I I grew up being really empathetic because I was the middle I was the middle kid, and so middle kids are kind of naturally I think. you were the Jan Brady. Of the group. I was a Jan Brady. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Um, so I so I kind of naturally have, and I've known writers. I know I've known people who just don't have that empathy thing. Like they they can't really get into someone else's skin because they're sort of consumed by their themselves or their own needs. But I have it kind of easily, and then it becomes really fun. So the, like the most fun chapter w- to write was the sisters because the sister the sister's voice is a familiar one to me. It's just kind of a Bronx voice and. It's it's kind of based on a friend of uh, a friend of one of my a friend of my sister, and it was just fun to embody her voice and talk about Flynn the way she would, even though it's it's not the way I would talk about Flynn. But that was great. That was a lot of fun.
0: Well, that's, I mean, it it comes out as uh, kind of unflinchingly honest. And it's, <laughs> no, it's, it, I'm serious. It's it's very uh, impressive. I flinch a lot. It's flinching. <laughs> it really is.
1: One of the descriptions of the book is that he he turns an unblinking eye on on humanity or something. And I blink a lot. I just want to say, for the record, I'm constantly flinching and blinking.
0: Well, <laughs> as I'm writing. Yeah. Well, Flynn as a character is he's very caring and very funny, but he's also he's also frustrating and he's a bit of an ass. Yeah. And uh, so thank you. <laughs> In short, he's a real person. Is what I'm trying yeah. to get at. Yeah. And uh, so you'd say that you say you. Kind of based it on yourself.: <laughs> What are you
1: getting at, Paul? <laughs>
0: what is this line of
1: questioning leading to?
0: Yes. I no, was an you, you've, you've mentioned.: Yes, in the past, I said it. Yes. You've mentioned in the past <laughs> that, uh, that no one writes a nonfiction memoir. Mm. So is this sort yeah. of a fictional memoir? what was that your goal to write a fictional no, memoir or? no god
1: no uh, it, it, there's a new there's a new genre now called autofiction and it's pretty much like it <laughs> sounds like yeah i know <laughs> i know don't even like talk Derek about it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of you know it's a bit like it's what hemingway did like it's just you know people writing roughly based on their lives but yeah. changing things uh, Jack Kerouac, that's right yeah, yeah yeah so uh, but i i'm i'm very proud so, I of you
0: call that fiction myself but yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: If I mean if, well I mean if, if you want to talk briefly about this the moment you start to write a memoir you start lying right because right. You, you're, you're leaving things out that you don't want the reader to know you're recreating dialogue like we could do that from dialogue from 1988 you know the, it's impossible so we start we tell we ourselves it's memoir because it is but it's also we're also crafting right yeah. and it's the same thing with autobiographical fiction you gotta craft that sucker or else it's gonna be pretty boring my life's pretty boring so when I craft it, I am increasing tension. I'm, I'm increasing conflict. I'm having characters do stuff that I didn't do, or not do things that I did. You know, because he's got to make mistakes repeatedly. Because this isn't a novel where he can make one big mistake. This is a series of stories. Each chapter is a story. So he's got to repeatedly screw up or cause some tension. But that's
0: more realistic. I mean, that's I think that's so. how people live their lives. I think so. It's a it's a yeah constant uh, barrage of mistakes and, yeah. and, and we, making up for it.
1: And sometimes if, I mean, Flynn grows up, I, di- I didn't grow up like this. Flynn grows up with a very cold, uh, chain-smoking mother, and my mother's very nice and she doesn't smoke, <laughs> for, for the record, Mom. And uh, and a father who died when he was young, when he was 16. My my father lived till 72. So, But but he's lost his dad and he has an, a kind of a cold mom and a cold sister, for that matter, very brusque, mm-hmm. So, he he is a kind of passive character who just wants to. He doesn't have any kind of autonomy or any sense of self because he never got it from his parents, and he never had any experiences where he could get it. So he kind of falls into his marriage, and he falls into his career. Who falls into his career? He doesn't not even sure he wants to be a teacher, and then he falls into his marriage and has two kids without much thinking about it. So when you have a character like that who's pretty pretty passive and who kind of makes mistakes because he really doesn't know who he is, well, then the challenge is. He's got to know who he is. Like, he's got to figure out who he is. And you can't just narrate that because that's so boring. So you have to show that. And the way you show that is not the way they show it in Hollywood with, like, a voiceover and one thing he does when he saves a life or something, but through a series of mishaps. Because when we mess up, we make a mess. You know, it's ugly. And so Flynn, for a long time in the book, messes up, and it's kind of ugly and a little embarrassing. But if you hang in there, things get better. Things get better. <laughs>
0: he gets his act together. Well, let's talk a little bit about your tour. Uh huh. Tell the listeners what you just completed.
1: Uh, I had uh, the east, the uh, Midwest, and East Coast part of my book tour was uh, thirty-four appearances in thirty-four days, and and when I, when I was telling people that, they would look at me and say, "Oh, are you going to be okay?" <laughs> <laughs> and the un the unspoken. Message was for a man your age, you know. Like, (laughs) is are you going to be okay? Uh, But if
0: Mick Jagger could do it, you could do it. If
1: Mick Jagger could do it, exactly. So, uh, and you know, all I had to do was, you know, twenty five minutes, not an hour and a half concert. So I I would go. I was going to different cities, almost a city per day. um, You know, drive driving the whole way. I drove about eight thousand miles, and uh, the first part of it was you know the book tour stuff was great the the you know reading with other people and getting good crowds and stuff like that and selling books but making friends and making new contacts but the generally i was kind of miserable because when i left uh my wife and i were both in the midst of this like very busy end of semester stuff and then I left in the middle of that, and I missed her terribly. And then there was that hailstorm in Denver, which, yeah, if I your listeners it. don't know about, was just baseball-sized hail that destroyed our car and the house. And I was in Texas at the time, couldn't be with her. She had to handle all the insurance stuff. You know, I was feeling very far away. And then uh, and she was supposed to join me the next week, but she had to stay home for insurance stuff. So I was traveling for a while there, just kind of miserable and feeling like a terrible husband and uh, feeling very lonely without her. And then she joined me in New York, and it was great. Uh, we were, She flew into New York. Uh, this was about three weeks into it, and I had a reading at the KGB bar in the Lower East Side, near where I went to school at NYU, uh, like a real hip, like it used to be like a smoke-filled, you know, beatnik place, but now now there's no smoke. But it's still a bar, and it's still a cool place. And then I read in my hometown or the night after that with, like, you know, 50 or 60 people. Like, you know, That's my great. mother's friends were there and uh, family, my whole family was there. And so that was really, really nice. And after that, it got—personally, it got much better. The whole time, it was still great to show up at a place and give a reading and, mm-hmm. and sign and talk to people. And the uh, 17 of those places were independent bookstores. And I just have to say, like, they're my heroes. They're just these wonderful people who— have against all odds opened a little bookstore in a city <laughs> somewhere and and are are doing fine you know are, are surviving and they love books yeah, so I,
0: it's it's a little piece of heaven in my yeah. mind yeah oh yeah
1: i didn't read at any so, chains or any big stores just all independent bookstores and libraries and or bar or uh you know places like that that were uh, very warm and welcoming
0: any any cities that were your favorites that stood out in your mind
1: i read at the the mercantile library in cincinnati and it's one of the most glorious buildings i i've never i've never known about it. i've heard about it cuz i teach um 19th century writers like Emerson and melville who or twain who who read there the old mercantile but like it's a storied place it's a great place but god that was a beautiful place to read uh, you know setting matters a lot and the kgb bar is great and and charlottesville i got to read at the for this reading series with my best buddy Jim, uh, so reading with my best friend was yeah. just such a treat.
0: That's great. Well, this is an international tour as well.
1: I read one night in Ireland.
0: Yeah, because <laughs> <Don't laughs> I was don't there anyway. That. You were in Ireland, didn't yeah. you? Read. I had to
1: go there anyway, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't really
0: count. But thank you. Uh, you're such a New Yorker. Yeah. Ah, it was, yeah, was uh, No yeah. big deal. No big deal. Yeah. Uh, I know you have a legion of students out there scattered across the the nation. It's sort of a um, yeah uh, Hixie and Diaspora you live you live long <laughs> enough if
1: you, if you live long enough and teach long enough you have a lot so of former I, students
0: I'm assuming you met a lot of your old students how, yeah how is that like
1: that? was a treat so in St. Louis there were there were five people in the audience one of them was the husband of the of my co-reader and four of them were well three were my former students and, and one um, another guy was her, one of the students boyfriend so I saw three former students in St. Louis and a, and a bunch uh in Austin and Houston and uh uh, Pittsburgh and very, you know New York and and the KGB bar there was a former student from each of the schools I had taught at wow <laughs> so, of the four schools and uh, friends old friends from college and high school so yeah that was a real treat to see students I haven't seen in you know ten or twenty years uh, there's a place called Beacon where I read and uh, hung out with a couple of my dear former students who are now friends you know pl- things like that um, what what a treat and, and what an honor that they would come out to see their old professor. Like, it was really cool. Oh, it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, any hecklers? No hecklers. No? You weren't around.
0: Ah, I know. I, I, <laughs> I, I think tried you to get back east, so I <laughs> couldn't get there. How does your expectation of the tour compare with the reality of it?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I had very f- few expectations because, you know, who's heard of David Hicks, right, in, in like, you know, uh, Burlington, Vermont, right? Who's heard of David Hicks? Anywhere. Um so expectations were kind of low, but I, I, I was very intent on, I, I don't know if the brand is the right word, but just spreading, like getting to know people so they would get to know me and maybe maybe buy my book, maybe not, but at least get to know that I'm an author out there and maybe get the next book or at least recommend it to a friend or something like that. So it's just, my goal was very simply to get out there and meet people and give readings and be an author, right? Mm-hmm. It, I did end up selling a lot of books, which was great. But uh, I learned very quickly, like I mentioned that St. Louis reading, uh, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of the two I mentioned. St. Louis, there were five people, and I sold 10 books inexplicably. And then in Cincinnati, there were about 45 people, and I sold 10 books. So I realized, oh, this isn't about book sales. This is really about, like, I can't go with the expectation that I will sell a certain amount of books. Right. And writers out there, they all know this. Like, th- they don't do book tours a lot because you don't sell a lot of books. Um, online or advertising is worth more but I'm with a small press it's really up to me to spread the word so book tour was the way to go and uh, it ended up being uh, well worth my time and effort in that I did meet a lot of people and I read with some wonderful writers local writers everywhere I went and that was cool so I made friends and and I sold some books
0: how did your uh, did did you just get more comfortable with your reading yeah yeah
1: I did uh my wife did a great thing uh before the tour she hosted two parties where I read to my friends and then they being mostly English teachers critiqued me uh really well so I read about six excerpts from the book to a gathering of friends who you know we fed and they we we you know threw alcohol at them and then they sat <laughs> down and and they listened very attentively and caring, you know, very caringly about to my, what my reading. And then they would write down little notes, like, slow down. Um, one friend said, you know, read, try to read as if it's not you who wrote it. Like, read as if it's someone else's words that you love. That's um, great advice. Yeah. That's really great advice. So I, I took that, I did that, and I read. Uh, I got better and better at the, the farther, the the, the more, that
0: the farther along the tour went, the better I read. Anything... Amusing, happening? That any uh, kind of embarrassing moments? This this is not
1: amusing. In retrospect, it might be, but it wasn't at the time. In Albuquerque, where all apparently all bad things happen. I really love Albuquerque, but
0: yeah, make wrong turns there all the time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I lost my rental car key, and I don't know how one does that, but I did. I didn't. I I wasn't drinking. I didn't really go out anywhere. I just I lost my rental car key, and then. I don't know if anyone realizes what you have to do when you lose your rental car key. I have no idea. Yeah, actually. Well, it turns out, first of all, you stay all night looking for it because you can't believe you lost it, and then, (laughs) and then you get towed to the nearest. In my case, Hertz, which was at the airport, so that's a lot of money to be towed there, and then you have to pay a two hundred dollar fee to get a new car. Only, I talked to a guy. I'll call Ray because I don't want to get him in trouble, and. Gave him a free book and he waived the fee for me. So that was nice. There you go. But that whole experience made me, that's the same day as the hailstorm. And that combination of stuff made me miss my Dallas reading. So I was late for a reading. I showed up, the books were all there. No one was, you know, the manager was like, hey. (laughs) (laughs) But he was super nice about it. His name is Andres. This is the Wild Detective Bookstore, Wild Detectives, Detectives Bookstore in Dallas. And he was—he couldn't have been nicer about it. But I—I I was so embarrassed that I missed—I missed a reading. Yeah, that's the only you one I missed. You could
0: have just read anyway.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone would have. A couple people would have gathered around.
0: <laughs> that's right.
1: And the—and one of the most fun stops, I—I uh, I visited two bookstores. One f- b- hosted by an old high school friend of mine, and they were most women from the Bronx or from Eastchester near the Bronx, and they were just. I hardly talked. They were just yelling at each other about my character, like whether he was a jerk or not, whether he deserved (laughs) our sympathy, and, oh, don't even get me started on the women. You know, they're all whatever. And then uh, the other one was this big, like, 23-member book club in Atlanta hosted by my former babysitter, Janice Laporta, and her sisters came, my my neighbors, my childhood friends, And that was a blast. That was just such a treat. Your former babysitter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's living in Atlanta. I drove all the way down there, and
0: it was just such a treat. I I was delighted. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So since our last interview with Christine Sneed, Mm -hmm. she had incredibly insightful answers on the business of writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And since then, I've been interested, uh, probably obsessed with that particular subject. (laughs) Uh, Now, you, sir, are firmly entrenched in the business of writing right now. How has the process of getting a book published changed your thinking or maybe your approach towards writing? Well, I have
1: to, I'm in the middle of thinking this right now uh, because I've gotten away from my new book and I haven't been working on it very much, just here and there sporadically, and I'm dying to get back to it. So I have to learn how to manage my time better. I have to allocate time for writing and stick to it and then allocate time for business. And I think the older I get, the more, the clearer it is to me that I need to regiment. My time more, and one of the things I have to regiment is you know, writing writing versus business time, and the Mm -hmm. business time because it just takes over it just took over my life like my writing life. Well, actually, my life. The book tour was very I was very very busy, but setting up the book tour took months. You know, just each Mm -hmm. bookstore owner, each uh, library, um, each bar. You know, whatever wherever I I read there was so much preceding that that was a lot of work. So, I mean, I really immersed myself into the business of writing in that I, I I did everything myself. I mean, I didn't, the publisher didn't give me a book tour. I did. And I have been marketing it on social media, and I've been uh, promoting it in other ways. So I, I but, you know, I, I learned. I Christine's a good uh, mentor for this. Uh, mm-hmm. I I went to panels on how to market your book, and I took notes, and so I'm trying to do
0: that. But at the same time... Well, not just marketing. I mean, how would you, how, you're going to have a new novel yeah. soon,
1: uh-huh.
0: I assume. And how are you going to expedite the process of publishing? Are you going to go at it differently? Um, or just, are you I mean, you're just going to do the same process of submit to publishers? and Well, I, I, I have best, an, thankfully
1: have... I have an agent. So I, I have to get my agent to like it. Because right okay. now she doesn't. <laughs> she doesn't like the idea of it. But um, if, once I give it to my agent, then it's her job to sell it. Um, so that's fortunate. Well, that,
0: that's interesting right there uh-huh. where you have an agent who says, no, I don't like that. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, you know, me as a writer, it's like, you can't tell me what to write. I know, I want to write what I want to That's write.
1: exactly. Well, I didn't say it in those <laughs> words, but I love her and I think she will like it once I show it to her. Um, but right now she doesn't like the idea of it. But yeah, it's not, that, it's up to her to market. It's up to her yeah. to sell my book, whatever it Would
0: is. Would you consider coming up with a different premise or a different story? No, no, to, no.
1: No, no okay. I have to write the book. I, no, yeah, you're right. I mean, if what you're implying is a writer has to write what or, he or yeah. she wants to write, and I, I want to write this book. This is my book. So if if she doesn't... if I'm not even going to go there because I, I, have, yeah. I trust that she will want to sell it and she'll sell it to a publisher. Yeah. Uh, if she, by chance she reads it and says, I don't like this, I may take her advice and revise it, or I may... If I think it's good enough,
0: um, try to sell it on my own. When you start a new project, does how you think about the project, how you how you approach it, is it different based on your knowledge of the business now? That's a great question. Consciously, no.
1: Unconsciously, maybe. Because I've noticed that my new book is much more marketable than than White Plains, much more kind of. It moves at a brisker pace. It's more It's more lively. It's got more stuff happens. Like the main character is really dynamic and doing stuff. Um, and more, kind of a couple more sensational things kind of happen. So I think consciously this is the book I've wanted to write for a long, long time before I, I ever sold White Plains. Unconsciously I may be thinking, oh, this will be an a easier book to sell than White Plains was because White Plains is a hard book to sell because it's a novel in stories and it's very quiet and nothing much happens really that's you know there's no sex or death or anything well there's bad sex but you know there's not nothing big <laughs> yeah. uh, um yeah. but the, this but i i would say the answer to your question is absolutely not it would not change what i want to write but in there somewhere in my brain
0: So would you craft it differently though
1: Yeah that's it's, what i'm worried yeah. about i don't think so i think i'm even
0: subconsciously it might be creeping in there Maybe
1: yeah maybe i i want to uh, maybe unconsciously I'm, I want to make a, more, uh, a book that appeals more, or a book that uh, people find more appealing, like the mass market. But at the same time, I'm not writing that way. Like I'm still being myself and revising everything 50 times and making it the best work I can make it. Um, but I, I can't say, I want to say uh, my understanding of the market now or the business of writing does not change what I'm writing, but I, I feel like it, that's almost impossible.
0: That sort of thing creeps in. It, yeah, I know, imagine, yeah. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. yeah. Can and you it's talk?
1: okay. And, that, and that's okay, by the way. It's okay to have an understanding of the market and understanding business and understanding the books it, until it gets to the point where you are writing for the market or for what you think the market wants, because yeah. that's just messed up. You're going to write a terrible book. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. And people have.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole industry on that. Yeah. Right uh, can you talk a little bit about the new novel that you're writing? Or you don't want to go into it? No, there? no, I, I'll try. i try. It's, uh, it's, kind of
1: it's kind of a Shakespearean tragedy set in modern America. Oh, yeah, that's a bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody dies. <laughs> There's blood on the stage. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's about the demise of America <laughs> through the eyes, from the point of view of a waiter in Yonkers, who's dead. <laughs> <laughs> but people—it seems fi- like you just keep adding. Stuff I know, there. I know. And he's in space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but people find his papers, and that's the narrative, like, and, and Facebook posts, and and letters, and but mostly he his writings. They they find it and piece together his uh, book. And oh, terrible so thing, a, terrible thing. So it's like a found
0: happen. footage type of
1: thing. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it starts with a Columbine shoot. It starts with like if you think back on ninety nine, two 2000, 2001 Columbine. Bush election, nine eleven. That's so much bad stuff happened, and then it kind of has gone down the hill since then. And the last, oh. the very end of the book, uh,
0: there was a little uptick in two thousand eight.
1: There was a little uptick, yes. Um, but there, but you could you could sort of. I mean, I mean, you could trace the demise of America back to you know slavery. You could uh, back to the Jamestown colony, or if you want. But it, it seems that things of the empire is falling. And I, but I I can't write about that because it would be bad. It would be bad writing. But I can write about a guy in Yonkers that I know really well, and write from his point of view, and maybe the context will will feed.
0: So you tell the story metaphorically rather than you know outright.
1: I tell it through a human being rather than like allegorically, you know, or 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 literally. Yeah. 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 You could see why my agent is like, "Eh, I'm not sure about that one.
0: So, David. Yeah. We're coming to our last and most important question. Okay. You knew this was coming.
1: I forgot. I I just now realized what you're going to
0: ask, but I forgot it was coming. In the movie about you, which actor, living or dead, would play the part of you? Oh. We do this every episode. I
1: know there's a there's a guy there's an actor who kind of looks like everybody tells me I look like him, but I can't remember what his name is. So I'm going to say, for for a while, people were equating me with Matthew Perry, the Chandler of Friends. Yeah, I could see that. I think more for his behavior than it looks. But I think it would be uh, the more the the better answer would be an aging Donny Osmond, <laughs> 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 because. I looked exactly like Donnie Osman when we were both, you know, 12 or something. I will
0: honestly say that was not the answer I expected <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, that's the answer you're getting, buddy. Okay. Uh, do you want my pick? Sure. And in his prime, Elliot Gould.
1: Oh, okay. I'll take that. Yeah, because he's lovable and Smooth goofy guy, but still yeah. has that hard edge uh-huh. to him. Yeah. He's got a big forehead like mine.
0: Well, I wasn't uh-huh. thinking that, yep. but yeah, it works. Elliot cool. Gould,
1: yeah. Okay. Of yeah. Ma- the, the MASH era? The MASH era. All right, exactly. I'll take it. Yes. Not of the Ocean's Eleven era.
0: Oh, no. Was he in Ocean's Eleven? Yeah,
1: he was was in Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Twelve or
0: whatever. All those movies. No idea. (laughs) Okay. So I want to finish by saying you are an inspiration to many, myself included. Uh, You've been a friend and a mentor for many, many years. And I know you think I'm just throwing platitudes at you. But uh, in all honesty, I'm impressed about what you've achieved, and uh, I'm very happy for your success. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. That was the sweetest ending to a podcast ever. Thank (laughs) you. I feel the same way about
0: you. And scene. (laughs) It ended with love, as all things should. (laughs) So that was my conversation with David Hicks. I've had the great pleasure of knowing David for quite some time, and I've had conversations like that many times over the years. It was really nice to have the opportunity just to sit down and record one. If you'd like to learn more about David, you can check him out at his website, david-hicks.com, or hit him up on his Twitter handle, at HicksWriter. He's pretty good at responding to messages there. You can also find links to his novel, White Plains, at those locations. I'll also put links in the description of this episode as well. I highly recommend you picking up a copy of White Plains. It is quite an astounding piece of work. Now, this episode officially kicks off the second season of Word After Word. Season one had a bit of a truncated run due to... Well, I don't want to point fingers or anything, but yeah, it was totally David's fault. You know, due to his setting off to promote his craft and all that. The nerve is on people. But we have a whole slate of new episodes planned with authors and poets and a couple of special editions. And if you're not careful, you might just learn something. All that will be detailed on an upcoming mini-sode. There's a whole lot going on here at Word After Word, so stay tuned for updates. If you'd like to learn more about the show, head on over to our website, wordafterwordpodcast.com, or leave us some feedback by emailing us at comments at com. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you get us through iTunes, please leave a comment. It really does help us to get found. I'd like to thank all the people over at Regis University for their help and their time. And of course, thank you for listening. On behalf of myself, Paul Matthew Carr, and David Hicks, until next time... Just keep writing. Word, a podcast on writing, is a Daddy Elk production.